Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey, Jonathan. How's it going? We got a special episode, Amy. Yes. Special, special. A bonus. Bonus. It's a bonus episode. Because we love our listeners so much. Sure. And we have things we like to talk about that are too much for one episode. Yeah, that, that's honestly, the, the we love our listeners, but really that's the reason that we have to do a bonus episode is because right. this conversation would be way too long for a regular episode. It'd be like an hour and a half. Uh, we could probably go an hour and a half today. So we'll see. But we are blessed to have good friend of the pod, maybe great friend of the pod, Trevin Wax on the program today. Trevin is here. Welcome, Trevin. Glad to be with you guys. I listen every single week. I'm, a, I'm a big fan. Yes, and sometimes that. Trevin will text me about stuff, and I'm like, I'm so glad Trevin listens. That makes me happy, because Trevin know, is maybe the happiest guy I know. Um, You know, I mean, we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. And again, I say rejoice. That's, <laughs> That's right. right. That's right. So, But Trevin, thanks for coming on, man. You got a new role yeah. over at NAM. So I know we talked about that on the podcast a few months ago. You've moved over to NAM as the Vice President of Resources and Research. So how's that going, man? Well, the very first week that I was supposed to be um, there in person when they bring all their staff in for what they call at-home week, I wound up um, having one of those breakthrough cases of COVID that the kids brought back from camp. So I I had to I had to kind of you know move into to to Nam with a, um, uh, a very slowly. Uh, because so you I had at-home at week. At-home week was That's actually right. at That's right. My at-home week was actually at home. That's right. Properly so, named. But, so so yeah. I want to I say I saw a, a picture of this on Twitter where they were all in like the the room and you you had you were zooming in, I think, from home. That's right. And it was hilarious to me because it was like this huge screen with That's you right. on the screen and then like. Kevin Ezell or someone standing there, it, it, you you were massive. The screen was very, very large. I Trevin, definitely Trevin made a big impression. You my, did make my, a big impression. My, my, yes. my quarantined bedroom. So yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, no, no, it was, it was good. I had, a, thankfully, I mean, thinking about other people that have had really serious cases, it was uh, relatively mild, just some fatigue and, and stuff, but I was able to work the, the whole week. I did get down there a couple of, uh, just last week, actually, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going, it's going really well. I'm learning a lot. I'm meeting a lot of fantastic people. Um, there is a lot of room to grow in this area at NAM. That's one of the reasons why there, this new initiative is going to be there. And, you know, I, every, every, you know, as you look back over your life, you, you look at the ways God has, uh, orchestrated things to, to prepare you in one season for another season. And this is one of those areas where I can see how God has, has given me certain experiences and education and all and church ministry and all sorts of things preparing me for uh, what he wants me to do um, uh, through the the ministry of NAM. So, what exactly does the vice president of resources and research do? Like, what, what's in your area there at NAM? So, right now, I'm leading a, a really small team. We are um, partnering with other teams at at uh, at NAM, but the the goal is that we want to provide. Uh, free resources for pastors and planters. Uh, we look at it like we want to be on the supply lines and we want to help those on the front lines of ministry with resources that are timely. Um, uh, we want to we we want to get the right resource um, to in in the right way at the right time to to different people. And so um, when I talk about the right resource, you know, immediately a lot of people think, oh, you're talking about books, or you're talking about you know publishing, or you're talking about we're actually talking about a large variety of things, um, everything from a YouTube content strategy that we're going to be uh, looking at and developing from uh, so, a, so video from uh, courses. We're working on a, um, a, a church planting masterclass kind of a, a video course that with um, uh, experts in pastoring and planting from all over the country. Um, we're, we're looking at uh, um, launching a new website with a lot of free resources uh, there's a lot of things that are out there already that NAM is doing well. There's an apologetics resource that I don't know a lot of people know about that's actually on the site that uh, we're we're looking to to uh, speak into that to help grow that to build that. It already uh, gets a lot of traffic just through Google and through search. It's been building for a long time. Uh, we're looking at podcasts, uh, uh, you know, with the, the uh, a podcast network. We're looking at eBooks, all sorts of things that we're going to be doing. Email newsletters of different kinds from different kinds of people. 
Uh, there's just going to be a lot of resources coming out of NAM that we hope in our partnership with different planters and pastors across the convention and around the country that are going to be um, uh, really essential for, for pastoral ministry, that pastors and planters are going to lean on these and say, um, you know, that we're helping to resource them in ways that are, are beneficial to their ministries. That's fantastic. Uh, that, that sounds amazing. And I know NAM does a lot already. Uh, they have a lot of conferences, different things like that. But to be able to go into like the resource development, resource production area that are specifically geared toward what they do to help churches, you know, and, and Nam, I know one of the things I've heard Dr. Ezel say a lot is that pastors and churches, they are our customers, so to speak, and, and they are focused on serving churches and serving pastors. And, and I, I get that sense whenever I'm around anybody from Nam, uh, whether it be Mark Clifton, whether it be uh, Dr. Ezel, whether it be you or, or whomever. Um, you know, Dahadi Lewis, who runs the Sin Network. I mean, just anybody that I'm around, they are focused on serving churches and serving pastors. And, and this just seems like the next iteration of that. Well, yeah. And, you know, NAM, NAM has done a lot of resources over the years. Um, there, there hasn't for, in a long time, though, been like a, a team, a, a, a small team that's actually committed to bringing together all the different arms of NAM that, you know, from sin relief to evangelism of leadership to uh, uh, the Sin Network, bringing all of this together in a in a way to to help provide uh, a, a, a more cohesive uh, overarching strategy to what resource production will look like at NAM. And so, uh, so I, it's it's really exciting to go ahead. I, I mean, I'm meeting lots of amazing people. I'm seeing a lot of great ministry that's going out. I don't know if you've seen some of the one thing. One of the things that I added to my prayer list after the SBC this year was just you know, every day playing, you know, praying for a particular planter, there's prayer cards that you can get where it just helps you see, man, God is doing so many amazing things in so many different places uh, in North America that it's just, it's great to to be a small part of that and to, uh, to, to help figure out ways to connect the right people to the right message, to help deliver resources for free to, to pastors and planters and really bless them in ministry. Very cool. I love that. Many of you may wonder, you know, Trevin, all right, what, what, your background, I know you came from Lifeway, that obviously helps. And give it, all right, so you got to tell people, like, you're developing resources for now. You've also developed a couple of resources that people, I think, probably use either every day or every week in their churches. Uh, if you read your Bible every morning, as you should, right, uh, and you're in the CSB, you can thank Trevin Wax for that. If you're teaching the Gospel Project every week in your church, you can also thank Trevin Wax for that. So Trevin, I mean, you kind of a, not too bad to have those two, you know, kind of on your resume as somebody going into NAM to help out, uh, you know, one of the leading Bible translations and one of the leading curriculums out there in churches today. Well, you can thank me for that, but you can also thank the the teams that I got to work with on that. I was I mean, giving you all the credit. Yeah. Like I, you know, I didn't, I didn't write the Bible. So uh, let's just, let's thank God for the Bible. But you wrote this version. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not even that. You're going to um, get in so much trouble, Jonathan Howe. That's <laughs> like, you're digging a hole big time. So, yeah. I mean, so yeah, no, it, it you know, it, it, looking back over the years at Lifeway, I, I mean, it really was awesome to be able to, to, um, to, to work on two projects with different teams that were, um, you know, that the Lord just blessed beyond our expectations. So, uh, you know, the gospel project was what I initially came to Lifeway for and was the main focus of my my work there for the first five years. And then the the second five years, the 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 primary focus was was um, um, CSB and leading the Bible team. And um, I mean, just again, amazing people. But that that's what I what what I say about you know the right resource at the right time. Um, you know, when you there's there's multiple things that go into to seeing. Um, a project uh, be successful. And there are all sorts of good things. I mean, we did lots of, you know, trial and error things, both in the curriculum space and in the, the, the Bible space where, you know, we, we think, Hey, this is going to be great. We listen to people. We think this is what people will, will want. And then we put it out there and it, it doesn't go, but the, that's how you, you know, unless you have room to, to have certain resources that, that don't do as well, that means you haven't tried enough things. You know, you've got you've got to constantly be thinking, um, innovating with with the right people around the table, getting everyone's expertise. You know, I'm not a marketing expert. I'm not a sales expert. I'm not a uh, you, you know a production uh, um, editor kind of uh, expert. But getting those people, procurement all around the table, and making sure that everyone's speaking into the process, it's just really great. What can happen when you get everyone really leaning into their strengths, uh, who are willing to hash out things at the table and talk about, you know, where 
you know, where they think we might be making a mistake or whether, you know, but ha- making sure that we all go in, in the same direction. And at the end of the day, everyone's had their say and we own the decision and we move forward. Uh, it's really an inspiring thing to see teams come together and be able to work on resources like that. And it's most inspiring when you find out that people are using those resources. You know, when you see people, uh, you know, when you see a kid with a, uh, uh, you know, a, a particular CSB Bible, or you see, you know, kids taking their gospel project cards home or, uh, you know, an adult who's contacted you because, you know, uh, we even had stories of like actual Sunday school teachers getting saved using the gospel project. So, I mean, it's just, it's it, realizing as they were teaching, I, I, I'm not actually a believer. So, I mean, it's just over the years, amazing stories that are, that are inspiring. And it's, you know, it's really, um, I'm just grateful to have been, been a part of those. Yeah. So resource number one coming from Trevin at NAM is going to be how pastors can better vet their Sunday school teachers. No. Well, you know, John Wesley was, you know, John Wesley was like already an Anglican priest uh, before he had the, 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 the warm feeling in the heart and became a believer reading the, I think it was the intro of Martin Luther to Galatians or Romans. I can't remember what it was, but so, you know, that's not like a new thing, Jonathan, where people have been in some kind of ministry and then realizing they're not actually regenerate, hmm. but. All right. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was a podcast and we wanted you to, and, and a podcast network. So we, we're going to obviously on a podcast here, but we wanted to have you on to talk about another podcast. I know this is weird. We have a podcast about another podcast, but there's a big discussion going on right now. The rise and fall of Mars Hill, uh, the podcast going on right there. You have a, a kind of unique history as a blogger, as somebody who's watched the culture of you know Christianity and all the ins and outs and the, the new fads that have come and gone over the really the past I would say decade and a half two decades. So when did you start Kingdom People, your your blog that you have? Yeah, so my blog started in its current form back in October of 2006, and then okay. moved to the Gospel Coalition as a column starting in 2012. Okay, so your first six years were kind of that that was like the rise of of Mars Hill. The, the you know as you moved and and grew there and then you kind of I guess saw the fall whenever you moved over to TGC kind of the timeline there a little bit but there was a, a article I sent you and I we put it in the show notes this week Brad Hambrick uh, our friend over at the Summit Church one of Amy's coworkers actually uh, wrote right. this week and, and there were two things that he pointed out I think were really good the two questions that he pointed out about the podcast that I, we wanted to kind of deep dive with you here. And I really appreciated these from from Brad. Is when it comes to this podcast, number one, are we listening to be warned or educated by what was going on in Mars Hill, or are we listening to be awed and entertained? Well, and you want you're asking me the question. Of well, I'm just saying I'm in general. Like, what, what are you? I mean, you you saw what happened. You you kind of cataloged it as well. You you also live blogged when live blogging was actually a thing. The Elephant Room, which hasn't yeah, even come yeah. up yet in in the podcast yet. They haven't even gotten to that point yet. But I know I keep waiting. I know I keep waiting on that. I keep that was waiting a huge for certain deal. for certain benchmarks. I'm like, okay, when is Mike Cosper going to address this? Like the kind of the things, the elephants in the room. I mean, that's what they are. Like the things that we know were huge parts of this story. It's this is a very and and I would love to hear your um, perspective on this, Trevin. A lot of people are processing this, but I'm also hearing a lot of younger you know, folks that are processing it, they're hearing some of these stories for the first time. The most surreal thing for me is to hear this deep dive on events that I very, very clearly remember and did not know what all was happening at the time. Maybe in certain ones, I had sort of a weird feeling about it, but I didn't know what was happening at the time because of, you know, where I was and the distance. And processing them now it's an incredibly surreal experience so what kind of tying that into how you've been in this world and conversation for a long time what's that experience like uh, for you well and it and it ties into that question from hamburg is is this right a being warned are we being warned and educated are we being awed and entertained by this And, and, and i guess at the same time back then were we awed and entertained by it or we warned and educated by what was happening then right well, I, you know, the way that this podcast, it, one of the reasons for this podcast's success is because Mike Cosper knows a lot of the key players and has been in this world for a long time. And so he is able to to draw out some of the nuances of what's happening. And I mean, in every episode, he's, he's showing um, how the Lord is at work in this, 
this environment that was obviously unhealthy and not, and not a good environment. There was still, you know, things that were happening. I mean, I was near tears listening to one of the guys talking about baptizing uh, his, his daughter. Like there's just, there's, I was crying you know, in the produce section about whenever that <laughs> yeah. was going, I was in the, I was grocery shopping, bawling in the grocery so, store when that was yeah, happening. I mean, so, so I, I think, I think there's lots of reasons for this particular story success. Um, the, the podcast success, we've seen a lot of, um, uh, in, in recent years, we've seen a lot of big falls and it's been really disorienting. Um, I, I think in one of the more recent episodes, Ted Olson at Christianity Today who has to cover all of these was, you know, asking the question, is anybody legit? Like, is anybody really right. genuine? And I've heard people like my, my brother was over last week and we were talking about the podcast and he said something to the effect of, man, I just want John Piper and Tim Keller to die. <laughs> Well, like Whoa. to die well. Okay, you know, like to, yeah, that, like, that's a big clarification yeah, needed yeah. there, Kevin. Yeah, no, no but you, he, I mean, it was Joe. He Finishing was well. Saying, finish, yeah. finish we well, need, you know? we need people to finish well. Yeah, uh, you know, we need the J.I. Packers and the John Stotts and you know, and uh, the you know, we and so this is what um, uh, because it's just it's it's very discouraging and demoralizing when you see sort of behind the artifice of a an evangelical celebrity culture what is behind the scenes sometimes. And so it is surreal. Amy, I'm like you, like I, I remember. So, so the episode with the very famous, how dare you sermon, um, you know, that, that went viral online and, and whatnot. Um, I, I remember processing that I was an assistant pastor in a church at that time. And there was a guy in our congregation um, who, um, who, who sent that thinking, you know, this was, this was a great, um, example of, you know, in your face preaching, almost like a, almost like this is a, this is a coach who'll get up in your face or like a father figure of sorts who will tell you like it is, tell you to man up and, you know, be who you're supposed to be. But, but I remember my, the pastor at the time, um, you know, who's older than me and older than, than my friend who was appalled by it, just absolutely appalled by it. Thought it was like, this is ridiculous. You know, like this is not healthy, coaching and it like, and, and so the different reactions I even remember then, you know, from, from, from different people as to, um, you know, what constitutes sound and, and good preaching is something that um, I'm still thinking about. And I've, I've been articulating some thoughts I hope to write about soon, just about the different ways people received it. I think there's a lot of father. Um, uh, there are a lot of father wounds out there. And Marcus even talked about this since he's sort of left the reformed camp um, and I, he's not totally wrong about that. Um, there, there's there's this this element of a hunger for uh, someone to 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 really hold to, to call you to something greater, to call you to something bigger. And that's one of the things that Mark was doing that I think in that season, in that moment of a, of of our culture, um, was was really different and really refreshing for a lot of people. And it was. And there's also this sense in which when you're always on guard against, hey, there's the slippery slope to liberalism, you know, to, you know, to uh, uh, losing masculinity or to, you know, compromising on complementarianism or it, that a lot of times when you feel like there's always this slippery slope, this drift to the left, you're not always attuned to or aware toward the, the, the dangers that may be on your right, it, like overreactions to to drift in one direction can lead to, to problems in another direction. And so you kind of begin to think, well, this person's okay. Cause they're really, you know, they preach hard. They preach the truth. They, you know, they, they, they'll get in your face and yeah, it may they be get the gospel, right? So yeah, this they other get the stuff is right, okay. So. That's right. I mean, we know he's solid because he says this, you know, and even if some of the stuff may be over the top or beyond or actually wrongheaded in another direction, because we're so attuned to this threat on this side, we might miss some of the threats on the others that I've, I've been, that's one of the things I've been thinking about the last few years with just the whole multi-directional leadership idea of, we need to be aware of challenges coming at us from different directions, not just from one, but. And, and I, let me just speak into this real quick, Trevin. And I don't remember, this was on a panel. It may have been around the time of when the send conference was at Bridgestone. So what would that have been like 2015, 2015. something like that? Uh, when it came to the issue of women, you were the first person I ever heard articulate that we are so concerned about the slippery slope of liberalism when it comes to including women in things like it, people are so concerned about where this could lead. 
and that that we were not often concerned about what happens when we exclude people from the in the body of Christ from being a part like you you said we we are more worried about that than we actually are worried about not letting you know women use their gifts and and things and and you were saying that within a completely you know complementary and baptist faith and message framework but you were pointing out how a lot of times fences were getting put up because of a fear of the slippery slope on one side. You were the first person I ever heard to articulate that. And I, and as, as someone, you know, standing in the room, I was, I was in very appreciative because I think we're, we're not thinking about that very much. Yeah. Amy, it kind of like you said it to me before is that we're so worried about what women can't do that we forget to affirm what women can do. Right. Kinda but it's a lines. slippery, it's a, yeah, but it's yeah. a slippery slope fear and a lot of times, slippery slopes they they work on both sides. Well, if you're afraid of drift in one direction, you can you can uh, you you don't want fear to drive your decisions. In any case, you want discernment to drive, and you want biblical faithfulness to drive your decisions. But um, it is it is possible a, a church you know you, you got if you got pastors and church leaders who are you know wanting to make sure that they don't compromise in this area that we they just need we just need we need to make sure that people are are aware of um, the the areas in which we may actually not not be not having women flourish according to all the gifts that God has given them in within the complementarian framework that we adhere to. Like I, you know, if, if, I, I think I think that's you know, and this obviously touches on the Mars Hill conversation because that is a that was a key component of Mark's um, of Mark's work in ministry. Um, I mean, going well beyond the bounds of like what. <laughs> what we actually believe the Bible teaches about um, different roles. But, um, but, but that was, that, that was the thing is you can, you can wind up um, by reacting against the the possibility of compromise on one side, having an overreaction that causes all sorts of problems on the other. Yeah. 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 So let's take us back mid two thousands, whenever you started blogging uh, up to 2000, you know, 15 or so, whenever it kind of all fell apart, 2014, I think it was, you covered this and and not just this, but you kind of covered as you blogged, you know, bits and pieces here. I mentioned the live blogging in the the elephant room, which is, was kind of like a, a, is watershed event. Is that fair to call it that? I think the second, I think the second elephant room, the one with Mark Driscoll and with TD Jakes yeah, was that, that was the one that I was live blogging and oh my goodness, I have stories about what that was like though. That was uh, that was the that was the only time that I actually had a conversation with Mark. But yeah. anyway, we won't go into all but, of that. But but as but. you covered that, like how, how was that like as a blogger where you're out there, you're blogging about kingdom and Christianity and and cultural influences on the church and how the church is influencing culture too. Like like talk us through or walk us through some of the things that that maybe we we maybe haven't gotten to yet in the in the podcast or that may have been you know they were a little bit more nuanced to something that might just can't cover in an episode or something like that but you you maybe did some deep dives on over the years and just Mars Hill's influence not only in Christianity and evangelicalism but in the Southern Baptist Convention specifically yeah um, you know there. I was I was one who was really interested and thought that some there could be some really good conversations come about from the whole elephant room concept. Um, of course, it w- the way that the first one went down, it was clear that it was as much sort of a entertainment type of event. I mean, it was very it was funny, it was interesting to listen to. But the thing that really struck out to me by the time by by the time we got the thing that struck me by by the second elephant room is that it felt like. There was a bit of um, uh, celebrity pastors who may not agree on all sorts of uh, all sorts of things, and I say celebrity pastors, I mean well-known pastors who, because of their their celebrity, w- wind up getting criticized a lot. And so, what you wound up, what I what what seemed to me to be the the common thread of both elephant rooms, but especially the latter one was that you wound up having this situation in which it felt to me like a lot of pastors that were well-known who had taken a lot of shots were getting together across sort of the theological and, and ministry philosophy lines and were, um, were, were commiserating together about what it's like to be in the public eye. Um, I mean, that, that's, that, that's what it began to felt like, but, but there's a, there's a sense in which 
if you're not careful, um, the, the sort of woundedness that a pastor can feel, you can nurse those instead of see those healed. And, and, and then, and because of the, because of woundedness, it can lead to that, that um, sin that I think we all battle with. And, and most of us don't really think about it as a battle, but the sin of self-pity, which then uh, blinds you to the wounds that you leave in other people's lives. And so the, the, once self-pity really takes root, then, then, then uh, um, you wind up in a situation where you're not seeing how you're hurting others because you're so consumed and focused on how something has, has, has affected you. And so there's a bit of that element in, in the elephant room. If you like listen carefully to some of the conversations between, especially James McDonald with Mark Driscoll. And, and I think a lot of the, the bad fruit that came out of those, um, um, you know, those ministries in, in a lot of ways, you can, you can kind of trace back to see some of the, perhaps some of the root sins that are there. And they should be warnings to all of us, not just, oh, look at how bad these ministries were and how toxic these environments were. They should, they should be the kinds of things that all of us as pastors and church leaders are taking root. I mean, the last thing you want people to say is, well, I'm so glad my church is not like that or that my pastor is not like yeah. this. You, you want to be on guard for warning signs that you might be tr- moving in an unhealthy direction. Well, and I just feel like I need to, we didn't really talk about what the elephant room is. There may be some listeners and likely are some listeners who are like, what are you guys talking about? All right. So 2012 was the round two, which is what you're talking about. The second elephant room pastors on it were James McDonald. He was basically the host, right? McDonald was hosting this thing. Mark Driscoll, TD Jakes, Jack Graham, Stephen Furtick, Crawford Loritz, and Wayne Cordero. So quite the diverse group there, uh, all across and ta- the spectrum. Yeah. Well, and tackling big one, issues, yeah. Yeah, and, and the in first the first one, had, one, you had Perry Noble. Yeah, uh, you had uh, Matt Chandler, David Platt. Yeah. yeah, tackling big conversations. So we'll put yeah. some links. We'll put some links in the show notes for those who aren't familiar with it. That you know maybe at least points yeah. to some descriptions and and stuff. And, and it wasn't really just about a diversity of belief because you know I would say the beliefs among those guys line up. Maybe not on every little nuance, but for the big tenants, most of them do. But it was, yeah, it was really style. what is what does it look like whenever we apply this in the church and how we yeah style and how we and how stuff. we do church Met- more than what we believe. That was the the discussions were more of a methodology than theology, right? Right. There were some theological discussions, and that was the big one. And the second was the, the take on the Trinity from T.D. Jakes and things like that. There was some big theological stuff, but it was really driven driven around, especially the first one too, was driven around methodology, and and that's the one where it really got into it with the the highway to hell. Uh, and the ACDC stuff that, that, you know, Perry Noble and them were doing out at, um, at the church. I think they opened their Easter morning service. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it was, it was really about like methodology more than theology in a lot of sense, but you also kind of, you touched on it that, you know, you look at these guys and I list off those names and you, you think of a couple of them that, you know, have had some pretty spectacular falls over the years. Um, so and it goes back to that celebrity culture and, and this is something Amy and I talk about a lot, you know, maybe offline or, but it's, why are we so driven as a, you know, Christians and in, in evangelicalism, especially, it seems like we're so driven toward celebrity rather than character. And, and I think Mike in, in the special episode with Joshua Harris, he, he talked a little bit about that. He didn't use those exact terms, but that was kind of the theme of it is that we're, we're, we place this emphasis on charisma and celebrity so much that we, we kind of ignore the character issues because we, we love the charisma and love the celebrity so much. Why, why do we fall into that trap so often as in Christianity? I mean, maybe it happens in other, it, I think it does happen in other worlds, but since we're kind of focused in, you know, in our SBC world and, and evangelical evangelicalism, we, we kind of fall into that trap. It, it seems like easier than most. Well, I think it's just because American culture is completely um, taken with celebrity in general. I mean, it's the current fame is the currency of, you know, I mean, let me look at the Kardashians. That's the like the, the great example. I mean, famous for being famous, right? So I, I think there's a sense in which um, if you're able to stand out, you know, through social media platforms or through preaching or through speaking or, you know, going viral, so to speak, there's a sense in which there's already currency with that, that is, is really, 
uh, unusual. I, I mean, I, I don't see that. And that's not the way the church is in other parts of the world, because that's not the way the culture is in other parts of the world. So I think there's a, I, this is just an example of our worldliness, quite frankly. I mean, we're, we, we mirror the culture that we live in, in this regard, because our culture is definitely uh, taken with celebrity. And so the church, I think, falls prey to that, just like the culture does. We should be different too often. We're not. On that real quick, the one of the things that, you know, I, I, was, I think it's an Adrian Rogers quote is that he the church should be upstream from culture. And when the church gets downstream from culture, it, it becomes problematic. But I, I start thinking back through that. Has the church ever been upstream from culture? Like when 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 was there a time when we were upstream? I think there were times when we thought we were upstream. If you kind of look at it, it's it's like we've always lived downstream from culture. Um, I don't know. It depends on how you define that. Because I there's a there's a large there's yeah. I a mean, sense in which, that's a, I mean, that's a like, general, a very sweeping statement that I'm making. Obviously, yeah. But I like you know you read Tom Holland's Dominion, for example, which not Tom Holland the Spider Man. I was going to say Holland's Spider Man wrote a book. Yeah, yeah. Um, but about how Christianity how Christianity basically made the West. And I mean, the the point all throughout that book is Christianity has radically changed all of our assumptions so that even people who are opposing the Christian church on particular views today are doing so from a stance that they got from Christianity itself. Like they've, they've actually, the assumptions that they have about, you know, human dignity or about human rights and all sorts of things come from Christianity. So um, I, I think we've been upstream from culture. I don't know that upstream is the is the right word, but there have been times when the church over the years, you know, like the kingdom of God being like leaven in, in the bread, it has permeated the, the culture in ways that um, we may not always see and may not always be aware of. And it's easy to look at our culture now and see the decline and say, well, this is because the church isn't influencing the culture as much. Actually, what we're seeing now is a culture that's turning on particular influences of the 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 culture because of other um um because of other uh, they're turning on particular in influences of christianity by using certain aspects of christianity that they've inherited as a weapon so it's it's like what chesterton said that the christian uh, uh people think that vices are what make the world go crazy it's actually the christian virtues all separated from each other that, that make the world go crazy, that we let those loose in the world, they do much more damage because they're not connected to the cohesive worldview of Christianity. And so even from everything from cancel culture to, uh, you know, the, um, you know, LGBT rights, all sorts of things, there are certain aspects of Christianity that people have grabbed onto, but disconnected from the whole winds up becoming a, a weapon. And so the, the virtue of fairness or the virtue of inclusion or the virtue of this winds up becoming this all-encompassing thing that then becomes a almost a pseudo-religion in itself. All right. I'm about to ask a hard question, like straight at it to you. Um, Jonathan, you can speak into this too, some with your background, but um, how has the publishing industry contributed to this and what is the stewardship role that the publishing industry has? Because here's the reality. We know this bottom line in Christian publishing. You're, you're trying to, you're, you're trying to meet, you know, the expectations that you need. You're trying to meet budget. You've got to sell. Part of that is promoting authors and people and you need influencers. You need people that have an audience, but then in the process, that's also kind of building that that's building up people. So how, how, how does that, how does that work? How do you, how do we need to think about as we begin to resource the churches, how to push the message and make that greater than developing these kind of people centered cultures? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, publishing certainly has something to do with all of this because, uh, you know, books are a mark of credibility. Right. especially from well-known publishers. I mean, right. Mark Driscoll was published by, you know, our friends at Crossway. Yeah. And Crossway is well-known for, for being, uh, you know, the, the kind of publisher that is has a lot of credibility in um, the Christian space. I mean, James McDonald was published by Moody. And I believe it's Moody. Yeah. And by, I mean, we did, Lifeway did curriculum. With oh, so you right. say Lifeway did a bunch of stuff with him. Right. So right. He, spoke um, at, he spoke at the pastor's conference like, Every year for about nine years straight, it seemed. 
Yeah. So, so yeah, there's a sense in which all of this begins to work together and there's, um, and, and then also just endorsements for books give credibility. You take one person's credibility and it adds credibility to, so, you know, you look at a, at an up and coming person and you're thinking about people you want to invite to your conference or that your you know, publishers are looking for a book and they see, um, you know, that, well, this credible pastor has a connection to this person. So, that must mean that they are sound, that they're good, that they're in a healthy spot ministerially or whatnot. And again, this is all just the way the ecosystem works in publishing is that, you know, their, their value begins and it begins to be assigned in this way. I think what this should mean, I hope what this will mean for publishing in the future for Christian publishers. Um, and I'm not picking on any publisher, like every, you can, sure. there's no publisher with clean hands on this issue, you know, um, on, because there's all sorts of people we could, we could point to, uh, I mean, Talia and Chavidjan or like, there's just all sorts of, and then, and, and, and publishers also can't foresee everything that might happen with an individual either. So it's easy to look back and to say, well, now, yeah, you look back and you say, well, how in the world did this person get the platform that, you know, get this book deal or get this or, you know, was invited to this conference. But you're looking back with a hindsight that the people at the time didn't have. And there was a lot of hopeful hopefulness around, you know, the next generation when it came to uh, to people like Mark Driscoll and Matt Chandler and others who, by the way, like with Matt, I, I honestly, I wonder sometimes if in the sovereignty of God, the cancer diagnosis and the cancer journey that my Mark had or that, that Matt had um, actually um, um, was perspective changing in a way that kept him from some of the excesses that you see in some of uh, a lot of the people that, you know, were, were connected to him at, at the time. But anyway, that's, that's beside the point. I, I do think um, when it comes to, uh, uh, to publishing though, that the, the character issue of the people we're platforming has has is going to have to rise higher than the amount of attention that we may get for signing this author or for having this person on our platform. Right. And it we're going to have to fight the instinct to just draw the crowd to the person that seems to have, you know, the it factor right now that everyone's wanting to listen to and have to really take closer looks at the examination of character. One of the things that Gospel Callers have been doing recently which I think is a great idea is um, when they do their bios for people that contribute to their blog, mm-hmm. they're including their local congregation, their local church. Yeah. They're as a way of signaling, you know, we, we, this person is accountable to this body of believers, right. to these right. elders, to these pastors. And I mean, that's just a small thing, but I think it's a way of kind of course correcting after years in which celebrities seem to su- su- to suffice. Right. So here's an here's an example that I remember that has always just fascinated me. So when I was at when I was working at Lifeway and I think it was right about the time you started in 2012, you were doing the, the you'd been there for a little bit and you were doing the gospel project. Um, there was a book that B&H published called Embracing Obscurity. And it was this kind of big deal. Everybody's talking about it in the building and the whole thing, the whole concept was it was this really well-known author who was, I don't know who it was. Do you know who it was, Jonathan? No, but I, I heard it wasn't a well-known person. Really? I don't know, Kevin, I, do you I know who it was? It was, a, it was a published author. I, I don't know who it I is. I know, but that, just because you're published doesn't mean you're well-known. No Here's my point. Anybody I've, published. I've, had, I've had thoughts about who it might have been based on something. Right. But. but we don't know who it was. It was by, it doesn't matter. It was by someone anonymous. And it's, it's kind of state the whole concept behind it, which I thought was fascinating was that let's take the name out of it and talk about embracing obscurity. Right. But here's the reality. The book didn't, I mean, it it didn't have much lasting power. I don't think anonymous just doesn't have much personality. Right. Because, and here's, here's the thing. They couldn't do any interviews, man. And, and here's (laughs) the thing. That's because they can't go out and market. They can't. That, like you just said, you can't go out and do interviews about the book. They don't have a ready-made audience. And so the reality is from a marketing perspective, the stuff that works is the stuff that's attached to a big name. But in the process, we're also propping up the big names. And um, so it just becomes a sort of self-fulfilling you know, right. thing. So I think you're right. I think that's something we have to start thinking about. And what you just said, that character becomes a huge, a huge issue. And in my mind, it's on both sides. It's not just in uh, in really testing sort of the character of people, but also 
we can, our culture can become a runaway train before we even realize it. And, and the, the pull of, um, attention, the pull of platform can do a number on a person's soul. And, and so I think we have to, to also recognize, recognize those things. Um, and to realize that the support systems, like you just said, the local support systems make a huge, huge difference. The people I know who are big names, but I know them to have great integrity, usually are very plugged into their local church or they have, um, I mean, they maybe have marriages where their spouse, like they will say, my spouse does not think I'm a big deal, you know, (laughs) and regularly reminds me that I'm not like they have humbling things that they're a part of, or they're little league coaches and their kids and they have a place in their life where they go and they are just one of a of a crowd, those types of sort of healthy local roots that, that they're building seems to make a difference. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I would not, and it's not that publishers, especially Christian publishers haven't cared about character in the past. Of course. I mean, there's never been an an, an era where people were like, Oh, we don't care about. Absolutely. Absolutely. But but there's been a, but there's been a, um, I think a shift in, Hey, we need to be looking at warning signs of character challenges that go beyond sort of sexual moral failing and in things, things like kindness things like kindness yeah well, i mean i remember there's a couple of people i won't name names you know because that's, that's not the point here but i you know there there are a couple of people that lifeway had done curriculum with that at the end of the day i mean they were just such jerks to the people that would either be doing the videos or doing the editing or whatnot that i mean it was just like you know we're we're not gonna partner with them anymore there's character issues here that are not public facing but just not it, 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 like you re- you recognize this is not someone that we want to work with because they don't have the, you know, they, they don't have the Christ likeness that we're actually hoping that their curriculum would form in their followers. Yes. And, and I would say too, that that was the, the exception rather than the norm. I mean, of course, it, yeah, you could probably count them on one hand, the, the number of people. And I can, I, we probably thinking of the same couple of names, but I mean, it, it's very, very rare that that would happen. Like I, I have met a lot of folks because of my positions in the past and so have you Travis. and i would say the vast majority of them are ones who of good character you know are kind like amy said you know kindness i think is a good measure for this and, and but there are a few and many of the few that we're talking about they are ones who have at some point or the other flamed out because of character issues well but being kind and you know one of the things we've got to remember though is you know being kind doesn't mean making tough decisions that are going to bring criticism I like I you know I I I think there's going to be some unintentional some unintentional uh, 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 unintended consequences uh, with the rise and fall of Mars Hill and one of one of those could be one of the things I, I'm a little bit nervous about is I would hate for us again in overreacting in one area, we, we, we can pull an extreme, a pendulum in another direction. I would hate for basically pastors to think that, well, I don't want to be a bully and I'm not going to, to, to do power grabs like Mars Hill. And so basically use that as a way of saying, I'm just not going to make tough decisions. We're just, it, it almost lead to a, almost a hyper passivity on the other side where tough decisions that are going to involve criticism because, because I mean, here, here's the reality. We, we, we're going to, we're going to be having an ongoing conversation over the next few years about what is healthy and unhealthy forms of leadership. And the reality is um, it would be very easy for any time someone disagrees with the direction of their church to suddenly say toxic leadership, abusive, spiritual abuse, or right. what, begin throwing out the, these labels and worm, words that actually have a very important meaning with gravitas. And we could do, we could wind up, we could wind up losing. First of all, if everything is toxic and everything is abusive, nothing, then is. nothing is. So we actually lose the gravitas of true spiritual uh, uh, um, abuse. Um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, then that basically paralyzes all church leaders to think, well, I don't want the decisions I make with my leadership team and that I'm trying to do in community that I know is going to offend some people in the congregation. If we, if we move in this direction versus that direction, um, it could lead to a sort of paralysis among, among pastors that uh, would be really detrimental because, you know, critics are the cost of leadership. Like you're just, leaders are going to 
they're going to occasionally make enemies. Like as far as we, as far as you can help, you want to be at peace with everyone as, uh, as we, we, we see in the scriptures, but you know, at the, you're never going to satisfy the a leader's never going to satisfy everyone. Um, and recognizing that there are going to pe- be people that disagree with your, um, your decisions is part of, it, it's just part of, part of good leadership. So I would hate to see aspects of good, bold, courageous, kind, Christ-like leadership um, being labeled as toxic, abusive, things like that, and, um, because of sort of an overreaction toward uh, some of the, 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 the truly deplorable situations that are out there that we've seen, toxic leadership environments that we have, have witnessed and that we're hearing about on the podcast. Yeah. And speaking of that, I want to circle back to the second question that, that Brad had asked. And I think that's a good point because I've got a question for you related to this. His second question was, does the narrative of the series cause us to dehumanize and delight in the harm people experienced, or does it cause us to see unseen hurting people and spark compassion? Now, obviously, I think whenever you read that question at first, you go, well, of course we want to be compassionate. We, we want to see. But I do think there's this voyeuristic thing of like, well, he got what he was, what was coming to him. Or, you know, this leader is bad and I'm glad to see him fall. Or these people are, are bad people and I'm glad they divorce. You know, I, I, I hate that whenever we see celebrity couples and divorces and people are like, well, you know, it's good. Or, you know, they're kind of delighting in this kind of thing or delighting in someone's fall. And, and I don't want us to, and I think that's what he's getting at. And I think that's what you're talking about too, is that we shouldn't be delighting in the fall of any leaders or any churches collapsing because maybe we don't like their methods or we don't think they get theology right or something like that. It should it should cause us grief any time that we see leaders fall for whatever reason it may be. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I reminds me of that that quote from Charles Spurgeon who said, you know, the church is an imperfect bride, um, but woe to the man who delights in pointing out her imperfections. Um, the the key is not that it's not woe to the man who points out the imperfections. It's woe to the man who delights in, in pointing out her imperfections. I think there's, there's a shift there when you go from having a critical mind to having a critical spirit. And we, we all need to have critical minds. And I think we need to look at what happened at Mars Hill and we need to learn from it. We need to be educated by it. We need to, we should have compassion. Uh, it should help us to see, you know, p- particular blind spots in our own lives and leadership where we may have hurt others unintentionally, um, not because we had a bad heart toward them, but, you know, just, you know, because we've, you know, we, we hurt people. It just happens. It's, it's part of what, uh, it's part of the effects of, uh, of sin in the world. We ought to, uh, examine our own accountability structures and things like that. But the moment we move from that to a critical spirit, to where we're delighting in seeing the fall of others, and there's going to be a host of copycat, uh, um, things that come from this. I think there's going to be copycat pad- podcasts. I mean, I can see other people doing knockoffs on, hey, the Ravi Zechariah saga, the 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 Harvest Bible Chapel with yep. James McDonald. I mean, the Telling I mean, like, Telling, yeah. Yeah. I mean, or Perry Noble even. Like I just there's so many additional stories that could be told. And I and and they they none of them will be told as well as this one because Mike um has um such a a a um a history and experience in the the particular movements that he's addressing and that he's uh, constructively critiquing, um, but they're going to be out there. I mean, there's already, there are secular, um, podcasts doing things like, you know, uh, there was a podcast recently about Jerry Falwell Jr. And uh, right. I mean, we're going to see a whole host of these that are going to come out over the next five to six years. And so it's going to feel like we're reliving these falls again and again. Um, I think the, the question as Christians we're going to have to ask though is, okay, what is this doing in my own heart? What is this doing in my own mind? Um, is this, is this edifying? Um, is this, am I, am I, am I learning? Am I just being entertained and awed by the exploitation of others? Or am I, you know, am I, um, um, learning something that's going to actually contribute something positive to, to ministry? Right. All right. So here's, so here's, as we sort of wrap this conversation up, cause man, we could go on forever about this. Uh, this is SBC this week. So our listeners are people who are interested in, you know, Southern Baptist issues and engagement things. What are lessons that we can learn? What are lessons that Southern Baptists can learn? What, what are the lessons for the SBC or at least some of them where, how do we scratch the surface on that? 
Are you asking me to go with that? Or are you I asking am. Donna for that? No, no I'm you. asking you. You're the, you're the smart one on the podcast. Well, I feel week. like we've already. Hey, I feel like, hey, hey. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think I feel like we've talked a lot about about some of the lessons to take away from this, both in maybe in denominationally signs and yeah, denominationally. Um, I think one of the lessons would certainly be um, beware the 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 tendency of social climbers within the denomination. The we we need to we need to have a distaste that becomes part of our culture for the pastoral strut. Because that is a, that we joke about that at the convention every year, because in, and it, we sh- and it should it should be something that's mockable. But I honestly, they, the the uh, um, it, it 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 still is prevalent enough in our convention that the joke doesn't stop it. So so from a culture standpoint, that we that we we need to we need to attack that because that is the kind of pride and hubris that's at the root of a lot of these. Uh, of these challenges. Um, I mean, other lessons would well, be it, accountability. And, well, on that yeah. one for a second, it manifests itself in different ways. I think some people see it as, oh, well, they just, you know, they dress really fancy so people will notice them at the convention. Well, that's another thing is, well, they have to speak into every situation so they can be the guy that everybody talks about or whatever coming out of whatever meeting it may be. You know, they, they always have to have their point and make their, you know, have their show and their whatever it is, you know, their, their moment in the sun or in the spotlight or on the, the screens or whatever it is that, I mean, it just manifests itself differently. I think and, Yeah, no, I've, absolutely. people think of it as one way, but it, it's happening. That pastoral strut happens a lot of different ways. Yeah, no, yeah. that's right. It doesn't always show up in the same way. Go ahead, Amy. Yeah. And I do, I do think, uh, in our conversations that we continue to have about how, uh, women get more involved in, in the convention. You know, one conversation that I have been having uh, with a number of people is that I'm realizing, and in particular, episode five, the things we do to women played out like this, that most of the men I know and the women I know heard that in very different ways, process that episode in very different ways. Uh, a lot of the men, you know, Keith was talking to a lot of folks that, that he uh, deals with were processing it in a very analytical way. And they were kind of breaking down, okay, who were all the guests who all spoke into it? Why didn't this person, why, you know, why didn't Mike interview this person? They're, they're processing it and they were thinking of it in a theological way. And women were resonating with things that they heard on that podcast. And they said, okay, I don't know what all, you know, I wasn't part of Mars Hill, but someone said that thing to me. And I remember that. And, um, and I do think that as we continue to have those conversations, um, that's, that's a key issue here because people who are involved, I mean, no people who are in the SBC all are kind of under a, a complementarian framework. So how underneath that, do we still have the fact that some of these, uh, ways that women were treated in that space are resonating and striking a nerve the way that they are. Yeah, still, um, yeah, a decade, still. Decade and so, later. So where, uh, where men process these things in a, at a theological level and women are processing it at a personal level because of the way they were treated in, in, in at whatever time, or maybe even some are still treated. I think there's something there and we can't, we don't have time to go deeper in that today, but I do think there's something there that we got to think about. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, this is actually what complementarianism means, right? That you actually have complementary uh, that the differences are complementary in a good way. So we need right. the analytical and the theological, but we also need the the personal and the experiential. And and that both of that conversation, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that demonstrates the different ways that uh, that people are receiving and processing this. Um, I would just say one one other lesson we should take from this. Um, Mark Driscoll, in some ways, sounded like a fundamentalist revivalist preacher. And that covered a lot of sins. And I think one of the things we should take away in our denomination is just because you have someone who takes the hard line, the strict position, who preaches really tough, um, there are more than one ways to tickle ears. You can tickle ears by trying to appease everyone in your congregation. You can also tickle ears by basically saying everything in the congregation that they already agree with over and over and over again and pointing to all the enemies out there. 
Um, it is one of the, the things we need to watch out for are people who through their social media presence and in their conversations demonstrate their disqu- the, the disqualifying character traits for ministry while making arguments about who is qualified to preach or who is qualified to teach or be or speak in this space or whatnot. So I think we have to, I think that the, the uh, uh, we need to broaden our understanding of what qualifying pastoral traits look like beyond just the, well, they're a good preacher, they're a good teacher, or he really believes the Bible. It has, we have to really look at the list that, uh, um, that we're given in the pastoral epistles and, and live by that list. Uh, in, because I, I'm frankly, I'm, I'm concerned that in a denomination that prides itself on its uh, theological rigor and in a denomination that wants to um, uh, remain true to the Bible, which is good and which we should, um, we can allow that sort of patting on our back saying we're biblically faithful to cover a lot of these other sins that the Bible warns about, speaks about, and character traits that are disqualifying for pastoral ministry. Yeah, it, it, it really ties into that larger discussion I think it's happening right now about they get the gospel right so we can overlook these other things. I mean, that's a different discussion that's going on right now online and a lot of other different areas, but I think that it, it really remains the same. Okay. One last question, maybe the biggest takeaway I've had from this whole podcast, Trevin, and I need your take on this very important item. What's the deal with living in people's basements? I mean, that must be an amazing basement, right? <laughs> like, I, don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. I, the whole you know, people moving across country to, to, to live in the basement. I, you know, and, and why does no one want to live in my basement? I guess I should feel bad about that. I don't even have a basement. Well, it hasn't really worked out that well. So maybe it's a good thing that, you know. They yeah. Don't. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I That has been like the most bizarre thing, I think, of the whole thing. It's just a, a common occurrence of, oh, yeah, we've lived, moved across country and lived in their basement for a while. I'm like, yeah. what? <laughs> Who does that? Yeah. It's And it gets come up in the podcast multiple times. I know. And it's just, I, I don't get it. So anyway, all right. Well, hey, Trevin, thanks again for being on. Last question for you. Last thing, you know, every week on the podcast, we end with a resource of the week. And we wanted to give you a chance to maybe shout out something uh, that you've been particularly interested in or has really, you know, impacted you recently. So give us a resource to well, folks I always, check out. I, I always think whenever um, I just immediately think about um, uh, the last couple of really good books that I read. One is uh, Doris Kern's good one, No Ordinary Time which is about the home life of um, basically what was taking place in Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt during World War II, what it was like at the White House during those years. Oh, you um, sold Amy on that one. On the home front. Have you read oh, that, yeah. Amy? I have not. So I need to, I need oh, to add goodness. that. It was fascinating. Yeah. Someone recommended it to me when I did a, a, a book list not that long ago. Uh, another really good book that I read in the theology space was... Um, I think I mentioned this one on Twitter, but it's called The Story of Creeds and Confessions by uh, Ryan Reeves and Donald Fairbairn. But it it is a great look at how creeds developed and then how confessions in different wings of the church developed after creeds. And it kind of tells, it kind of, it, it takes you through church history, but in a way showing, you know, that at the end of the day, we confess a name, Jesus Christ. What does it mean when we say Jesus Christ is Lord? That is what uh, creeds are intended to do. And then confessions speak to localized uh, situations, expressions of theology that are important as we, you know, confess our faith in more detail, but just fascinating how Christians have, I mean, even in the new Testament, we have creeds and creedal elements and confessional elements already there um, just to see the development of that over time in the different wings of the church. That, that book was a, a great primer on that. They didn't go too deep to where it would lose people, but also uh, just uh, uh, help people see the story of development over time. All right. Very well, thanks, cool. Trevin. Appreciate you being on here. And, and also, we do want to thank our, our sponsors this week, Southwestern Seminary, each and every week here on the podcast. If you're considering your next steps in theological education, then head to Fort Worth, Texas for Southwestern Seminary's Fall Preview Day on October 22nd. You'll have a chance to tour the campus, meet your professors, talk with fellow students, meet President Adam W. Greenway, and experience the unique campus community of Southwestern Seminary. Visit swbts.edu slash preview to learn more and register for Fall Preview Day at Southwestern Seminary. That's coming up 
in about a month and a half from whenever you're listening to this podcast, if you're catching it when it drops. So, uh, Trevin, uh, thanks again for being on with us. And, folks, if you had Minute 33 as uh, whenever Trevin would first quote G.K. Chesterton in the pool, you win. And uh, congratulations on that. So we, we can't do a Trevin Wax interview without a Chesterton quote. That came in minute 33. So uh, I, I was watching for that. So Trevin, thanks, man. Uh, thanks again for everything you're doing over at the North American Mission Board. And Amy, I'll see you next week. See you next week. See you next week.